today on Foodstuffs. Jess looks at the effect of a Montreal takeout restaurant on a small, formerly unused, and slightly dodgy city park. Then we meet with a woman who defied her doctor's orders and wound up figuring out a treatment plan that worked best for her. And go figure, it involves food. I'm Megan Telvner, author and nutritionist, and you're listening to Foodstuffs. There's something people do on their lunch hour. I don't know if it's the neighborhood they were in, but it's not like absurd to have like a group of four that will come in for lunch on a you know, Friday afternoon and split a bottle of wine in the park. And... Welcome to Foodstuffs, a podcast about food and culture and their intersections. I'm Brian Goman and I'm Jessica Walker. So Jess, did I see a photo of you eating Turkish food a couple weeks ago? Yes. <laughs> My dreams came true. Um, it was a Saturday morning, and my friend Al and I went to Etobicoke and checked out this restaurant called Anatolia Restaurant on Dundas West. So how was it? What did you guys have? We went for lunch, um, so it always takes me a little bit to get warmed up in the day, so we just decided to split the mixed grill for one, uh, which had a selection of kebabs. There was uh, Xander, Beatty, uh, lamb and beef, if I remember correctly. It was really, really tasty. Um, and they actually sell, serve it with rice pilaf and bulgur wheat, which was really delicious. And then all these salads. And things kind of looked a little bit different than what I was used to in Halifax. But tasting them, they tasted the exact same. I have to say, I was overjoyed. But what about the hot sauce? Did they have the yes, hot sauce? that's okay. what I'm saying. It looked different. Like the tomato-y fresh hot sauce looked different. But I ate it and Al had sort of just like given it to me he was like i know that you're gonna eat all of it and i was after the fact i was sort of like came i'd blacked out and i uh came to again and i realized that i ate it all and he was like no no i understood that that was a part of the deal <laughs> so thank you al for um for being so generous so on the last episode i mentioned another conversation i got to have while visiting montreal yeah there was something month. uh to do with picnic baskets right that's exactly it um so yes two summers ago while i was visiting montreal some friends and i met in this little park on saint laurent um, just south of the entrance to little italy i would not have noticed the name of it at the time it was just a one block by one block city park and we were biding some time before meeting our friends at a bar close by when I noticed this adorable scene of a couple having a picnic complete with a gingham blanket and everything. Which is the gingham blanket, which is that sort of classic red and white checkered blanket that you think of when you think of the sort of old school picnic, right? Precisely. Um, and so at first I saw one a few meters away from us, but then I started looking around and kind of noticing that they were actually everywhere all over this little park. And... And that's when you knew something was going on. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so when I went back this summer and knew I was going back this summer, I had to get to the bottom of it. So you returned to the same spot and you met with who? I met with one of the owners of a restaurant slash takeout spot called Dinette Triple Crown, which is located across the street from this park, which I now know is called Parc de la Petite Italie um, on Rue Clark or Clark Street. It was one of those gorgeous late summer, early fall afternoons, and we started our conversation by talking about where this idea came from. Here's Jess speaking with Nicole Turcott, part owner of the Montreal restaurant Dinette Triple Crown. The night before we opened, I went out and bought about eight 
vintage baskets and we put together the first picnic and from the second it went out everybody who was in the restaurant was essentially what is that how do I get it I want that <laughs> so now we send out oh I can't even think about how many we send out <laughs> thousands and thousands of these baskets over the last uh, three summers amazing what uh, yeah just to give a sense of how it works what is the food that you're providing and, and why does it work so well for this picnic format so we're a southern restaurant. Our chef is from uh, Kentucky. So I think that southern food does translate well. You know, making the leap from fried chicken to picnic is not not that hard. Um, it's great warm weather food as well. You know, goes with the sunshine well. Um, so the baskets, essentially our entire menu is available for the baskets. People can order anything they like off of the menu. Um, as, if, as if they're eating in, and we just need to know for how many people it's for, so we can put the appropriate amount of glasses, plates, um, cutlery, barbecue sauces come with it as well, and then you get a tablecloth, just in case all the picnic tables are taken, people put it down on the grass. Ice buckets if they have white wine or mm -hmm. wine chill their beer. And people essentially come over to the party, eat all their food and hang out, and they just bring the basket back after they're done. So I know for me, as someone who's never lived in Montreal, um, park culture in general is pretty special here, but you're talking about bringing a white wine chiller <laughs> to, the, to the park, um, clearly from your restaurant, and this is not a problem. So can you describe what is so special about park culture in general, particularly around boozing in the park <laughs> as well? So the rule is um, that if you are eating, and that means a proper meal. You can't have like a bag of Doritos. And, and no, a bag of Doritos to drink your Molson X with. Exactly. <laughs> you have to, generally what I've heard is that they look for like plates and cutlery. Okay. It seems to be like the little the thing, the tell -all. So as long as you're eating, you're allowed to drink. Um, of course, they do write the law in a gray manner so that you know, if you're two people and you have 72 beers, you <laughs> will get a ticket. If you're being drunk and disorderly, you will get a ticket. But as far as, you know, people who just want to spend a day in the, in the sunshine and have a bottle of wine or, you know, a couple beers and enjoy their lunch, it's no problem. And it's, uh, I think it's a pretty common activity. It's even, you know, it's, it's funny, like, you... It's something people do on their lunch hour. I don't know if it's the neighborhood they were in, but like, it's not like absurd to have like a group of four that'll come in for lunch on a you know Friday afternoon and split a bottle of wine in the park. And it's entirely that. civil. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about the neighborhood in general? Maybe what it was like before you guys got here, and then the the feedback that you've received. So, in I mean, in general. I think that Montreal is an extremely safe city. I, when I first moved here, because there is such an active nightlife and you know many things happening into the late hours, that there's so many people out that there's kind of this, this like safety and number thing that happens. So I would never ever describe anywhere as unsafe. Um, but there, there's a little bit of. Uh, Unsavory, unsavory like activity, a, yeah. antisocial behavior happening. Exactly. Yes. Uh, um, right on our corner, actually, on Sunset City Park. Uh, so there wasn't, you know, a ton 
going on in the park. I always had noticed it on my way up to the Jean Talon market from where I live, but nothing really popped out. Um, and George, uh, who has the Dependant right across the street from us, uh, who's been there for ages, said that he saw this transformation happen really quickly once people started having the picnics in the park. That one, it was not absurd now to see a family eating in the park at 8 o'clock. We do like to eat dinner late in Montreal. Um, and just this general use, and there's pretty much always people here now always yeah that's pretty beautiful there was actually a um, a birthday party happening housed under that gazebo yesterday when we came to eat um but yeah it's it's basically fertile territory for someone like you guys to move into and yeah. it's like a pretty perfect love affair yeah we i mean the picnic idea came after the space i think that that's the thing like we since when we first opened we did like a quick search to be like, is anybody doing this? Like, this seems like a good idea. And we just wanted to see. And three years ago when we looked it up, we couldn't find anywhere. There's been a couple that have cropped up from around the world, but nowhere in Canada that we could see. Uh, but I mean, I think a huge part of that is the fact that your restaurant has to be located relatively close to a park. There's also the fact that we don't charge anything for the baskets and there's no deposit and so I think that's very appealing to people who wouldn't necessarily try it if it was going to cost them a fortune and they just go out and eat at you know one of their restaurants that they normally eat at and they know what they're going to like so it, the fact that it's a free service also I think has allowed for us to reach a, a, a broader public um, but the risk with that is that if you're not charging anything and there's no deposit, if you're getting your stuff stolen constantly, well then it's not a very good business plan. But we don't lose anything. You know, like in three years, I think we've lost. This was the first summer where we kind of were looking at the stacks of picnic baskets. And like, there's like two or three that are missing. But I don't think that that would work everywhere. We've had, we get tons of tourists in from the States. Um, like there is no way this would work in New York. Like when they when we tell them that they don't charge them anything for it or right. don't charge a deposit. So it's it's a unique relationship that we have with the park and with the people of the neighborhood. It speaks volumes of how great the neighborhood is and how great our clientele is that we can provide the service and just not have to worry about losing our all of our equipment for it. So. For sure. Um, back to the baskets and everything. Can you just, I want the numbers. How many picnic baskets do you have? Um, we probably have roughly about 60 baskets that are at our disposal at one time. I, most people take about an hour, an hour and a half for the baskets, but those, the two to three people ones, easily get rotated, you know, we tried to figure it out the other day, but we're looking at about three to three hundred baskets on a Saturday, probably. Oh my gosh! Yeah, like covers-wise, because that's how we. Oh, covers do you do in a night? And on a Saturday when it's a gorgeous day out in August, it easily could get up to five, six hundred covers. This is the 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 sucker punch to get if you're not ready for it and you want to do this idea that you need to mentally prepare yourself for. And I mean, we. We let each, we let our, you know, customers know like it's gonna be an hour. We we try not to let it get up to an hour. If you know, ideally, 
every basket would take 15 minutes to put out, but when you've got, when, you know, you take 30 orders in the space of, you know, 20 minutes, and they gotta make all that food, it, it takes a while. And people, for the most part, I'd say a good, like, 95% of the people are super chill about it. We take their phone number. This other thing, the great thing about being a little Italy is they can go and go grab, you know, a coffee at the Cafe Italia or Saint-Signon or go to, you know, get a Quebec microbrew at Vissarsa across the street and then just call them. There's like things to do. Mm -hmm. for, I'll forget about it because, you know, you're working and it's busy and you're, it's like 40 degrees and you're sweating and, and then, you know, like I have to come to the park for a reason and I see everybody out here. I'm like, this is really amazing. You can sometimes forget when you're like, stuck in the hot kitchen and then I'll come across the street at night and there'll be like you know candles or like lanterns and it's just like oh yeah this is amazing and I think it is a quintessential Montreal thing that parks are just maxed out mm -hmm. it's just people use them and use them and use them and it's and it's nice to see because it's nice to be outside and it's it's a public space so the public should use them and they should come out and I mean we people can take our baskets anywhere we don't specify it has to be this part people take it to Jean Mans or Jerry families take it families it'll just take it to their backyard but it's like people are out and about and using these spaces that they essentially pay for which is which is really great I think it helps even right for the evenings at least, you know? <laughs> the evenings and Sunday afternoons. For sure. Well, I think I'm gonna go get a picnic going and have a drink in the park because this is uh, that kind of day. It's so perfect. Thank you so much for chatting with me, Nicole. My pleasure. Yeah. Cheers. So that was Jess speaking with Nicole Turcott, part owner of the Montreal restaurant Dinette Triple Crown. It's so crazy. Hey? I can't believe it. Six hundred <laughs> baskets on a Saturday. That's it's insane. insane. <laughs> it's insane. Exactly. Um, because it's yeah, that's it. It's not six hundred meals or six hundred people that no. they're serving. It's six hundred baskets holding meals for anywhere from two to twelve people. Because that's it. That's kind of where the whole idea spawned from is um feeding groups bigger than what their eight-seat restaurant could initially satisfy. So it was for these massive groups. Um, and Nicole was telling me that they're sort of old school. So they're just using pads and, and paper, or pens and paper, excuse me, um, and not actually tracking individual numbers of people and individual meals that they're serving. So they don't know how many covers, we call them, um, people that they're serving in the course of a day. So they're kind of guessing at it. And if they're doing 600 baskets in a day, that means they're doing at least 1,200 people, but probably closer to 2,000. It's crazy. What an insane, amazing model. It, this is what happens when you have an original idea. It's and it just seemed to work, like you say, such fertile ground for something like that to come in and just, okay, let's do picnic here. And it mm -hmm. just took off. So uh, good on them. And I'll have to check that out next time in Montreal. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do it. Now let's head back to Toronto. Um, earlier this fall, Brian and I had a visit with someone you know well, Brian. Yes, we paid a visit to someone I've known for a number of years now. And full disclosure, I have done some production work for this woman. Yeah, Megan Telpner is a nutritionist and author and makes some online videos as well, um, who was diagnosed with Crohn's disease in her mid-20s. And for those of you who don't have the pleasure of knowing what Crohn's is, 
It's an autoimmune disease that's said to be uncurable and involves a lot of very uncomfortable and uncontrollable... Yeah, I'm just going to stop you there. <laughs> um, I think I think if this is your reality day-to-day, um, you have to become pretty comfortable pretty quickly with... What were you calling it earlier? Your scatological right. uh, conversation? Shit talk. Like, no. Poo. No, stop. Please. I mean, I'm... I'm I guess I'm I a wuss. I'm a wuss. You're uncomfortable. And fair warning... Crohn's and this conversation involves some pretty uh, graphic realities. Realities is the word, I think, yeah. Um, But even if you are uncomfortable, I will advocate here. It is a really interesting conversation, and I think there's a lot of takeaways for people who don't have Crohn's as well. Um, So let's get to it. Here is our conversation with Megan Telpner. Before I got sick, I think it was like, I want to say it's like most 20 two-year-olds. I was finishing university. I had a degree in fashion. and I was going to be some big deal in the fashion industry and all these things. And I came to get my degree and was pretty unhappy. Um, And so I felt like I needed to do something good for the world. So I packed up and went to Africa because I was like, that's what they need in Africa, someone with a fashion degree. Um, So I went and I I did some volunteer work, but I was sick the whole time, essentially from a week after I got my vaccinations to go there. I was dealing with with health issues and it wasn't anything I'd ever given a lot of thought to previously. I'd never, you know, when you're healthy, you don't think about your health. So it was only when it started getting worse and worse and worse that I really started to be terrified that. I was going to be that sick person for my whole life. And what kind of symptoms were you, uh, I don't know how, how gra- graphic you want to yeah, get? Yeah, like explosive bloody diarrhea kind of graphic. <laughs> but I mean, that's what it was. So by the time I got back, it was sort of, you know, classified as IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. And it was getting worse and worse. When did you get your Crohn's diagnosis? I was, di- the, the official diagnosis, the naming of the symptoms happened in the uh, it was August of 2006, okay. so a little over nine years ago, um, and that was three years after my travels. So there was a three-year period where I was going from doctor to doctor to try and figure out what was wrong. So it was it was 19 was the final count before I was diagnosed with this incurable autoimmune disease, and it was only until you'd asked about my symptoms that they'd gone progressively worse and worse. So it started out okay, with yeah. like irritable bowel syndrome, where I'd be fine for a couple of days, and I'd have like explosive diarrhea, and you know I like I call it rapid evacuation. Right. That's the nicest <laughs> word for it. Um, and then I wouldn't go to the bathroom for days, and it just became like this obsessive thing because I didn't know whether what I ate was going to make me feel good or make me terribly ill and I'd have to cancel all my plans for the weekend. So it was over a span of three years that I continually modified my diet because I kept doing research into this, thinking that, you know, despite after my diagnosis, my doctor saying nothing you eat is going to affect the prognosis. I felt like what the food you eat will affect how you feel. That seemed to me to be common sense. Yeah. So I want to jump in there and and, because that I think is... (laughs) Very telling. Like, so you, uh, the doctor had diagnosed you with Crohn's and then all at the same time said, well, just eat, go on eating with whatever you want. His exact words were, go ahead, eat your cheeseburgers, drink your milkshakes. Nothing you eat is going to affect the prognosis of your disease. I, it just made no sense at all. How how could that possibly be true? And I'd never even had a milkshake. It makes made me it always made me phlegmy. I was never yeah. really interested. So that was kind of when I realized that that there was nothing that 
conventional medicine could do for me at that point. I wasn't sick enough to have my intestines removed, which is still how they deal with it nearly 10 years later. Um, and I didn't want to be on medication my whole life. I was 26 at the time and I would get prescribed, you know, during these three years, I'd get prescribed all kinds of medication and I'd go home and I'd look at the side effects and be like, these look kind of worse than what I'm dealing with right now. And then the, the medications for Crohn's disease have side effects like colon cancer or liver cancer. And I fortunately, I think because I'd modified my diet and had been sort of tuned in, I never got to the extreme place where I had to be hospitalized. So that was a blessing. Um, And so I was able to actually take some time and think about this and figure out what I was going to do because, you know, I don't have my ears pierced. Yeah. I didn't want someone digging in with a scalpel, removing a section of my intestines and then having to have a bag outside my body that was going to collect my poo. If that was the best they could offer, anything else was going to be a better option. And then lifestyle was a big thing to that because I know at some point, like you said, you couldn't even go to work. Yeah. So you ended up sort of retiring to an extent. <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was like it was a retirement. It's tricky because, you know, I've been criticized in the past being like, "Oh, she's so lucky that she was able to do this." But at the same time having surgery, you end up having to take the same amount of time off except you're not being productive. You're not building health. You're in recovery. And so I decided to take this 3-month sabbatical from life and focus my full-time job was to heal. And, and I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't know if it was the right thing to do, but I also didn't have another option. So what was the, in that, that sort of three month window, it wasn't just diet. Can you talk about everything that yeah. you did in that, that period? Yeah. And, and it's a tricky thing because people hear my story and they're like, okay, well, what was your diet? And, you know, I have my books out and they're like, and some of the negative feedback on the book is like, well, I have Crohn's. This didn't help me heal from Crohn's. It's like, well, the diet itself isn't going to do it. And there's no one diet for everybody to heal because we all have our own contributing factors and own causes of what has brought forth whatever our condition is. So there's no one diet for everyone. I was like, the diet that helped me heal from Crohn's was the Meganitarian diet. Okay. It's very good for me. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a full lifestyle shift and it was a full mindset shift. And that's actually the hardest part, changing the diet. And a lot of people are like, oh, I don't want to give my ice cream. I don't want to give my cookies. That's easy. Changing the, your perception of the world and changing how you function in the world, that's where the hard work is. So for me, it was, you know, going from being this, you know, probably pretty flighty, shallow, self-absorbed 24-year-old in the advertising world, you know, more worried about my shoes than anything else, to actually looking at my life and looking at what was working and what wasn't working and really accepting the fact that everything I had done in my life to that point is what had created this disease in my body and taking responsibility for it. And so figuring out how to unravel it also was my responsibility. And so I committed to a few things, which was to start sleeping. Um, You know, we always forfeit our sleep when life gets hectic. I was like, I'm going to sleep at least eight hours a night. And I was going to commit to doing things that were going to build my health. So I started meditating twice a day, going for acupuncture, practicing yoga, and then cooking. And the rest of my time was spent cooking. I'd go to the market. I'd learn about food. I was reading books. So if I, you know, I found out pretty early, there's four nutrients that are really important for, for healing the cells of the body, A, vitamin A, vitamin C, vitamin E, and zinc. These are the nutrients for tissue healing. So I started looking at 
all the foods that were richest in those four nutrients, which is a very isolated, strange way to deal with health. But I was diving into this thing. I had no idea. So I was trying to figure out a been, formula. Like, cooking and things like that oh, before? no. Like as 24-year-old mm-hmm. most... No, no, it was yeah. like Rice Krispies and milk. If I got fancy, it was adding right. banana. <laughs> like literally like microwave so popcorn totally, was totally dinner. new to, to Completely. cooking. Right? Yeah. But I just knew that if I didn't start to understand what I was putting into my body, there was no way I'd be giving myself the keys to actually heal it. So that was how I started to cook, like literally a nutrient and an ingredient at a time. And so I would start to buy the foods that were the richest in these healing ingredients and anything I read that could potentially exacerbate digestive problems, inflammation, um, anxiety or nervous system stuff was on my no list. And that essentially cut out gluten and sugar and really any processed food. So everything I was eating was made in my own kitchen. I knew what I was having. I was putting my own energy and love into it and doing it all with a positive state of mind that this healing process was going to be the most fun I ever had in my life. And so I committed to that. And that was really the key. If it's stopping fun, I didn't do it that day. And so the result within a month, I was symptom free from something that plagued me for four years. That's where I want to go. So one month is what it it took. And that was the diet, but plus, like you say, yoga, acupuncture, sleeping, sleeping, resting, not working, not working, finding yeah. joy, you know, not doing things out of obligation. So going out with people because I really just wanted to see them and have a conversation, not because I felt like if I didn't go, I was missing out on something. What, it, did it take the moment of the diagnosis of Crohn's for you to understand what? I knew what Crohn's was and I knew the direction it could take. I have a first cousin who has Crohn's who's been really sick. Um, and I knew the direction it could take and that terrified me. And yeah, I guess that, that was the breaking point. It was, it was also just that when I'd been so sick, I'd realized so much in my life wasn't working that I'd sort of been doing things that were expected of me and hadn't really tuned into what I wanted and what I needed to do. And I always felt like there was something bigger or more amazing I could offer to the world. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what that was. And it was this moment I was actually in a health food store with my mother and she was asking about some protein powder and the woman in the store was like talking about the benefits of it. And it was like the lights went on. I'm like, I want to know this. And that was sort of what inspired me to to take this on and start learning and then to go back to school and actually once, you know, it took about a month for the symptoms to go away. It took about three months for me to be confident that like, wait, I think what I did worked. Mm-hmm. So you went to school for nutrition, basically? Yeah, like you said, to, to study learn. holistic nutrition, to understand what what this was. What I had done that I'd been told over and over and over again was impossible. So you haven't had any any real flare-ups or anything like no. that? Like it stayed in remission, like you say, for nine years now? It, yeah, yeah, full nine years, a little bit more. So what's what I found so, found so fascinating was later on when I'd follow up with doctors, they're like, well, maybe you were misdiagnosed. So I went and had my genetic testing done. <laughs> Because it's a genetic disease. It's it's a there's a genetic marker in the interleukin right. 24 pathway. So I went and had my genetic testing done um, through 23andMe, which is really cool, and it showed that I'm 10 times more likely to have Crohn's or colitis. It's in my genetics. I had it, and now I don't have it anymore. If someone was, someone listening to this, yes, has just been diagnosed. Well, what would you say to them? What should they do? It's okay. <laughs> Don't, don't be terrified. Um, I guess my advice, and it depends where they're at, because some people get diagnosed in the hospital when they're hooked up to feeding tubes. And so we'll get diagnosed when they've just had a flare up. And 
it, it, it really applies to any health condition is to never make decisions out of fear that you will always know the best decision for yourself. And it's not always easy and it can be really scary. And there's a chance you might make a wrong decision. Um, but that's, that's part of it. And I think too often when we're diagnosed, we're terrified and we give our power away to someone else. And, and it's not just with this, it's, you know, we do this in our jobs, we do this in our relationships, we do this whenever we feel like we're in a, in a lesser position. So to know that there are always options and that with anything, I encourage people to explore your options, not necessarily in relationships, (laughs) you, you want to know that you're, you're in the right one, but, but you know, really when you're working with a doctor, that's a relationship. So knowing that you have a doctor who supports the questions you're asking. And then, you know, as it relates to, to any health condition, your diet does matter. And food is an important part, not so important that you want to create more stress in your life by trying to eat right all the time. But if we can eat lower chemical foods and more cleaner, more real, more unprocessed foods, that makes a big difference. And so with, with Crohn's, it's, it's, it's knowing that you do have options, knowing to seek a practitioner that can work with you effectively, um, knowing that you don't owe the person you work with anything, especially if you're looking at natural healthcare practitioners, you're paying them. If they can't help you move on, people get stuck with naturopath doctors for way too long who aren't doing anything. And the one question I encourage everyone to always ask when they're being given a recommendation for something to take, whether it's natural or, or pharmaceutical, is by what mechanism? By what mechanism is this going to help the root cause of what I'm dealing with? Not just taking something at face value because you've been given a script for it and you're going to go to the pharmacy and they're going to give it to you, but that you really understand yeah. what that medication what is, this, is going to do. What is do. this doing here? What exactly is happening when I take this? Yeah. 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 How is and it helping it me? Help? And when we can start asking that question, suddenly we start actually getting to the healing and not just to symptomatic relief. Thanks so much, Megan. Yeah, you're welcome. That was our discussion with Megan Telpner, who turned what would be, for many people, a lifelong sentence. Crohn's. Into a career wherein she has become the proponent for individuals becoming educated advocates for their own health. Which comes back to food, because it was really diet that proved to be central to her healing. This was sort of the context in which we first discussed having this interview, and it makes a lot of sense when you think about it. Crohn's affects the digestive system and the digestive tract. Um, why wouldn't the things that you're putting in there either help or hurt <laughs> your health? I mean, it and seems why very simple you, and straightforward, right? Why wouldn't you try to be gentle to this thing that's essentially getting um, scarred by normal eating habits or quote unquote normal eating mm-hmm. habits? Um, why wouldn't you try to go easy on it in some way? What else stuck out for you? Yeah, I think the takeaway for me and for many people who don't have such an intense chronic disease is that how you treat your body is sort of a metaphor for love relationships. Um, the part where she compares someone knowing that what they ought to do, uh, but still making the unhealthy choice, and then them complaining about the outcome that they should have predicted resonated with me a lot. And I think that we all do that to a certain degree which is definitely pause for thought, you know, like your Mm -hmm. best friend complaining about their shitty boyfriend for a long time when you've given them the, all the advice you can, and then they still come back and haven't done a damn thing, but they're still complaining about it. Your, your compassion dwindles over time. Mm -hmm. And and that does happen also with food and, and your body, I think in general, I think that's something of just being listening to your body, listening to what your body is telling you. And often I think with the relationships, it's almost like, 
people will call it listening to your heart. Mm -hmm. And if you think about a situation that you're in and you know you just feel bad about it, that you want out, Mm -hmm. but you don't do it, it's the same thing here where, you know, people will eat food and they know, oh, those hot wings. Yeah. (laughs) Every time I eat them. uh, But I don't want to think about that. I'm just going to keep eating them. Yeah. Well, it comes back to comfort as well. It's like I don't want to break up with this person because... It's a warm bed at the end of the night or it's like a person to go to the movies with or whatever. Um, but or just take responsibility. Like exactly. And that's the opposite of that. If it's That's how people become well mm-hmm. within relationships or with their own health is when they decide, I have to take this on. And I have to take control. It's not going to be my friends that solve the problem or, or someone else or a pill. It's going to be me taking this on and, and deciding for me what's the best thing that I can do. And that's another episode of Foodstuffs. Big thanks to Nicole Turcott for meeting with me in the middle of her workday to talk about her workday. And to Katie McKay for having a D-Nut Triple Crown picnic for her birthday and inviting me along so I could know what I was talking about. And thanks also to Megan Telpner for sharing her personal story with us. And she just launched a new cookbook, right? Yeah. Exactly. So if you're curious, you can check out her website at megantelpner.com. We love to thank Eric Betlam, Sam Petit, and Ken Stauer at CIUT for our beautiful Studio 2 studio space. Thanks, guys, and thank you for listening. You can find us online, www, do people say this still? (laughs) Foodstuffs.life? Worldwideweb.foodstuffs.life. On uh, Instagram and Twitter, at foodstuffslife. And you can find us on Facebook as well. Just search for Foodstuffs. We. I'm Brian Goldman. I'm Jessica Walker. We will see you in two weeks. Blah, 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 blah,